Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 14th, 2010. notes for today was particularly hard to compress stuff down thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebrough and i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of god to the Word of God. I trust God's Word. Why, you say? Why should you trust it? Well, Jesus did. And that kind of makes the difference of everything. Because Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews in human flesh. And when challenged uh, regarding the authority to do and say the things that he was doing and saying, he said, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And the temple he was referring to was the temple of his body. So he proved to actually be God in human flesh, which is really, the, the as far as arguments go for the existence of God, that's the one you really need to focus on. That's the one that atheists need to defeat. Because it's not defeatable, by the way. It's absolutely historical fact that Jesus claimed to be God, and that the tomb was empty again on the third day after he was crucified. Now, you're sitting there going, well, that doesn't prove scientifically beyond, you know, to the point of like point zero 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 one percent or whatever. Yeah, you see, saving faith doesn't just affirm that the tomb was empty. It doesn't just affirm that Jesus was a historical dude. Uh, saving faith affirms that for sure, but it, there's one other thing that saving faith affirms that uh, historical faith in the facts doesn't, and that is is that the theological explanation for the historical events that's recorded for us by Jesus' apostles, his disciples, the good news that Christ's death on that Roman cross was for the forgiveness of my sins and yours. And that Jesus is the one true God 
and he loves us so much that he died for us in that while we were still sinners. You see, saving faith clings to those promises that are tied to those historical events. They are for me and for you. And so I just happen to be of the opinion that since God, Jesus is, you know, God and human flesh, that um, I would be really kind of silly to call myself a Christian, you know, somebody who believes in Christ, and, uh, and to think that I know better than, well, God and human flesh about the trustworthiness of the Bible. It's kind of silly, don't you think? And so I just happen to be one of those guys who say, you know what? There's so much I don't know. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't really know as much as I thought, but certain things I can know with certainty and cling to. I'm not God. Jesus is. I trust him. I don't trust myself. And I don't trust other people who claim to know better than Jesus. Because it's, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of preposterous, silly, and stupid. You know better than Jesus, really. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to go with Jesus. Because he rose again on the third day. I just don't think you're God. And you know what? I think the evidence says that he is. <sighs> so that's, you know, it, you'll, if you listen to this program with any regularity, I, you'll notice that this is a particular theme that I keep coming back to. And so when people are making claims about God, there's a, you know, listen, religious claims and religious ideas are a dime a dozen. And the, the reality is, is that a lot of people are willing to pay a lot of money to hear a lot of exotic and new claims, strange new teachings, things that have never been heard before as it pertains to the spiritual and religious realm. Yet you can read the Bible for free on the Internet. Yeah, you download this program for free. I don't charge for pro downloading the program. And what we try to do here is defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There aren't, there's no secret knowledge in the Bible. There's no code to crack. It's all there, written in very simple language using nouns and verbs and pronouns and adverbs and adjectives and direct objects and and subordinate clauses, all information, more than information, true revealed knowledge about who God is and what he's done for us. And so when people pull out their exotic, new and improved, never before heard secret knowledge, and they're the ones who've discovered it. I just basically say, oh, yeah, it's a lie. I don't care how new and exotic and strange this teaching is that you're bringing, and I don't I don't care if you've climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro naked while waving chicken feathers the entire way in a trance-like state, receiving uh, vibrations from the ethereal plane. All of that is poppycock if it contradicts the word of God. And I don't need people who've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro while naked and in a trance. I just need Christ. That's all I need. I need him.
And I trust him, and you can trust him too. He is the one true God. And he came to earth and lived a perfect life under the law of God for you. His righteousness is imputed to you by faith. Your sin is imputed to him, and he has stand, He has stood in your place and drank to the dregs the full wrath of God on the cross for you so that you, by faith and trust in him, can stand before a holy and just God and not be ashamed. You can stand, and the judgment has already been rendered, not guilty. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's really what this program is all about. It's about proclaiming and defending that gospel against competing gospels, complete competing messages, competing religious ideas, and shooting them down, taking every thought captive, and obedient to the word of Christ. Because you can trust Jesus. You can trust him. Okay, <clears throat> today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We didn't get to uh, the Apothero uh, story. Uh, God is not one and neither are the, are the uh, world religions. We're going to take a look at that today. I've got two short emails that I want to do before we get to that segment. And then, well, we've got great news here, folks. Uh, in case you have been, you know, lying awake, you know, pondering this deep scientific slash philosophical question, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the big deep one, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Apparently scientists have solved this particular mystery. We'll take a look at that story. And then I want to talk about, uh, I, I, there was a listener who I think posted this on my Facebook wall and I cannot find the listener's name. I apologize. Otherwise I would give you credit, but I will say that I didn't come up with this on my own. A, a, a listener noted this that uh, there is a place in the scripture where gold dust is mentioned. There is one place in the scripture where gold dust is mentioned. And I'm going to bring this up in in kind of uh, context of the fact that uh, in tomorrow's uh, new exhibits in the Museum of Idolatry, I will be putting up video from a recently posted uh, video that went up at XP Media where you've got people including Joshua Mills and others, basically covered in gold dust, um, claiming that that's a miracle from God. And it's it, I think it's an outright mockery. It's, it's a satanic mockery of what the Bible teaches regarding gold dust, by the way. And so I'm going to read the section of Scripture that mentions gold dust, and I'm going to do it in context. And uh, and then we've got uh, a little bit of audio from a video also from the XP Media website. You remember that book that came out a couple of years ago called The Secret? Uh, yeah, it taught the so-called law of attraction. You know, it's basically goofy New Age kind of thinking. Well, uh, someone over at the XP Media site is trying to reclaim uh, the law of attraction and claims that it's biblical. And so we'll be listening to... Uh, uh, those claims regarding the law of attraction to, to really delve into uh, this sharp biblical uh, and an acutely sound biblical argument by one of the folks there at XP Media on the law of attraction. And then our sermon review today comes uh, from the uh, one prayer uh, series that occurs every summer, uh, uh, lifechurch.tv. 
um, every year does this uh, series called One Prayer, and they get thousands of churches participating, and then they kind of pipe in uh, sermons from you know key seeker-driven guys. Uh, this is Craig Groeschel's uh, annual uh, thing that he does, and this year the with the the total per- you know there was. The participating churches, the members of those churches that were participating, uh, equaled close to three quarters of a million people. And uh, so, I mean, talk about having quite a bit of exposure. Well, Scott Hodge uh, from the Orchard up there in the Chicago area, he um, he was one of these uh, seeker-driven guys who preached. And I'm telling you, Scott Hodge has left biblical Christianity. He has left the reservation. He is off in bizarro land. And uh, the name of his sermon is entitled Unstoppable Movement. And it's it, it, when I was reviewing the sermon earlier today in preparation for the program, I mean, it was just tragic. It was at, it just watching this sermon and listening to the sermon, it actually made me sad. Uh, the reason why it made me sad is because dece- the nature of deception is so bad that the person who is deceived can't even see the gospel when it's right there in front of them in the text that they're reading and preaching from. And this is an example of, of the gospel being right there in front of him it, in black and white. He's got a Bible open and uh, over a little coffee table type thing where he's preaching and it's right there. It's it's right there in front of him. He reads it, and it doesn't even register a blip on his radar. And the sad thing is, as a result of him not seeing the biblical gospel in the text that he was preaching from, he ends up offering really a false gospel that offers no real good news at all. And it's talking about the unstoppable movement that is the church or the body of Christ. And it's I consider this to be one of the more tragic sermon sermons that I've you know that I'm going to be reviewing that I you know that I've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith. So stay tuned for that. Lots of stuff uh, to cover today. Make yourself comfortable. Yeah, keep in mind your listener experience super important to me. I mean, just absolutely at the top of my list. So. Make yourself comfortable. Kick up your feet if you can. I understand that some of you, you have busy lives and that you have to multitask while uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith. That's okay, too. If you want to exercise while listening to the program, you can do so. If you uh, can only listen while you're in your car, uh, thanks for taking me along for the ride. I, and if you're traveling and, you, and you're listening while, uh, while traveling, again, thank you for taking me along. I, if, apparently... I've been making trips with people all over the world. I recently got an email from somebody who took a long trip from uh, one of the East Coast states all the way to Hawaii, and uh, and they say they listened to me the entire time. Now, I didn't get the benefits of uh, actually traveling to Hawaii with this listener, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure my recording had a great time in Hawaii, so... <laughs> That's the thing. that's the thing that's not so fun is is that I don't get to vicariously enjoy uh, where my voice is traveling to. So, <laughs> no shucks. Maybe if I was more spiritual, like I, I would be able to. Anyway, with that in mind, we're going to dive into the program proper. We're going to start with a couple of short emails. Mm-hmm. A 
right. The first email comes from Scott, and I do not know where Scott is from. Uh, Scott has not informed me as to, you know, what state, region, country. I, I assume he's somewhere in a western English-speaking country. Maybe the United States or Canada even, but uh, hard to tell. He's responding to uh, the lecture we played yesterday on uh, Fighting for the Faith, Al Mohler's lecture, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, defending young earth creationism. And it was just, I, again, I gave uh, Al Mohler a standing O. But Scott writes, he says, sorry, but I, I can't give an amen to Al Albert Mohler's talk today. I believe that the age of the earth in the universe is is a separate question from the origin of man. An old earth does not necessitate an evolutionary explanation for man. It doesn't rule out the creation of a literal atom from the clay separate from animals, as Genesis clearly states. And a high view of scripture does not necessitate concluding that the earth is only a few thousand years old. I think it's a matter over which Orthodox Christians and even confessional Lutherans can agree to disagree. Christ, peace, Scott. Now, I want to make something really clear here. You need to listen carefully because I don't want to be misconstrued. I do not, under any I, circumstances think that whether you believe in a young earth or an old earth should be the measure of one's orthodox confession. Okay, There are true Christian brothers on both sides of this uh, debate. I'm completely fine with that. That being the case, uh, the one thing I was a little disappointed with in your email, Scott, is that you really didn't truly interact with Dr. Moeller's arguments. You just made statements that said, I don't think that an old earth necessitates an evolutionary explanation. I don't think this. I don't think that. That's great and all, but that doesn't really interact with what Dr. Moeller's arguments were. What I, if you, if I could challenge you, boy, I hate using that word. There's a couple of words I hate using. Challenge and purpose are two of them. Uh, the reason why is because they've been completely misused and abused by many in the uh, in the church today, and as a result of it, I, I get a little queasy every time I use them. However, in this particular case, the word challenge is the right word, and what I would challenge you to do at this point is, since you don't agree with Al Mohler, and I, you know, listen, I don't know how old the earth is. I, I really truly don't know. And I don't know how long the ages of men are. Okay. The one thing I do know is that, uh, for instance, the, uh, the genealogies of Jesus and the genealogies that are found in the Bible, if you understand them correctly, that it doesn't necessarily go from father to son to father to son to father to son, but that, that, in many cases, uh, Hebrew genealogies kind of hit highlights on particular people and then skip over generations. That being the case, I couldn't tell you how old the earth is, but I do believe it is correct, and I think it is a more correct biblical way to look at the scriptures, that the earth is far younger, you know, maybe tens of thousands of years old. I don't know the exact age. But um, the one thing is, is is sure and certain is that man's uh, history all of a sudden seems to explode onto the scene, um, you know, what, six, you know, five, six thousand years ago. And the one thing we know about humans uh, is that um, uh, we are sure creative and we leave artifacts uh, wherever we go, tools, uh, buildings, uh, you know, our, the technology of the times and things like that. And um, 
and it's mysteriously quiet um, prior to five or 6,000 years ago. And the thing I think that would be the sentinel event or the, the seminal event of uh, five or 6,000 years ago would probably be Noah's Flood. And which I think explains why when we begin talking about human history, we talk about the Fertile Crescent there in the, uh, in the Middle East. And there's not much going on prior to that. And, um, you know, the whole hunter-gatherer nomadic thing, um, you know, I don't know how long that is. But, you know, I, I think that the, uh, the histories in the, in the scriptures are correct. Now, keep in mind, there's an entire epoch of uh, humanity uh, that that is, you know, well, we don't have artifacts. This stuff is missing. And why would that be? Well, because God scraped uh, humanity off the earth using Noah's flood. And uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know how long that epoch was. I don't know how many true generations that was. I don't know how many thousands of years that, that era was uh, prior to the flood. But I... There's so much evidence, as far as I'm concerned, that, uh, you know, what was another one? Do you remember the, uh, have you ever heard the argument about the spacemen going to uh, to uh, the moon? They were concerned about moon dust, because uh, if the moon was a particular age, then, you know, they would end up uh, falling through the moon dust, you know, if it was millions and gazillions of years old. And the moon dust was minuscule. I mean, it, the moon dust didn't even come close to their... Um, calculations based upon an old earth. I mean, there's lots of stuff scientifically that's inconsistent. But what I, what Scott, what I would really like you to do is go back and interact. Give me, say, Al Mohler said this, I disagree with it because of this. Give me something that I can hang on to. And uh, if, if I can challenge you, coming back to my challenge, if I can challenge you, come back to this idea I thought one of uh, the better arguments that Albert Mueller used in his uh, presentation and uh, one that I've also heard Todd Wilkin uh, use has to do with death, has to do with that, has to do with death, death being a result of our sin. And I think that was the linchpin on which this other stuff kind of came through, okay? Okay, so you believe in an old earth. Great. Yeah, you believe that uh, that God physically made Adam and Eve. That's wonderful. Can you explain death? If there's an old earth concept, is death the result of man's fall into sin? I mean, God describes the new heavens and new earth in a way where there is no death. There is no tears. A lion lays down, lays down with the lamb. There's no more predatory animals and things like that. How do you reconcile those passages with your view of the old earth? Give me, give me something I can hang on to. Give me a counter argument that directly handles uh, Dr. Mueller's uh, uh, biblical argument. Yeah, see, I, I re, I'm reminded of something. Yeah, yesterday I, I read my article that I wrote about God wanting unequal economic outcomes. And what I found interesting is on my Facebook wall, a couple of people, um, uh, for, well, a couple of people commented on it, but they completely missed the point of my art, of my post. I always find it interesting when I write something, when people don't interact with the thesis and the supporting arguments that support my thesis and instead you know they're off talking about something that i didn't even say 
You know, I think in our postmodern era, I think it's important for us to recover the idea that when people put something out there, it's important to interact with the thesis and their supporting arguments directly. And it's not enough just to say, well, I disagree. Well, that's great. Why do you disagree? Give me, give me something I can hang on to. Give me a well thought out biblical reason why you think Albert Muller's arguments don't square with scripture. You know, that, that, that'd be great. Okay. And if you, if you want to interact with the thing I wrote about, uh, God wanting unequal economic outcomes, interact with my thesis and its supporting arguments. And if, you know, that would mean, no, you, you'd need to say, no, I believe that God wants exactly equal economic outcomes. And here's why. And here's, that's my thesis. And here's the biblical argument for it. Your arguments, uh, your supporting arguments are fallacious because you've done this and that doesn't support that or whatever. But if we're, you know, so you understand what I'm saying, Scott? I think you got it. Anyway, um, so if we can get that from you, that would be fantastic, and I look forward to reading it uh, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Okay, I got an email from a gentleman I used to refer to as young Ben Mordecai. I can't do that anymore. He's married, and uh, I don't think he has any kids yet. Um, uh, ben, do, are, is uh, you and your wife have any kids yet? I mean, you've been married for a little bit of time. Um, he wrote a very quick, terse email to me. He says, Chris... I've been wondering, since apostolic authorship is the main qualification for canonicity, did Hebrews get included in the canon if, how did Hebrews get included in the canon if the author is unknown? Fantastic, great question. Okay, now, I'm going to say this. This is not a cop-out answer. This is, the answer to this is complicated, okay? And I recommend that you pick up a book, and you. this is a book you need to have in your library anyway. The name of the book is New Testament Introduction by Donald Guthrie, G-U-T-H-R-I-E. This is an amazing book. And what he does is that... You know, you know, in our study Bibles, you know, we have, you know, when we go to a, a new biblical book and we're reading through it and we go from Matthew to Mark and then it talks about Mark, when it was written, who the author is, what its primary points was, who was the audience and things like that. Donald Guthrie's book, New Testament Introduction, is that type of data on each of the biblical books in the New Testament. And it's like that information on steroids. And Guthrie is no hack a scholar. I mean, this guy, he, one of the things I love about him is he says, the higher critical liberals say this, but they're wrong because we know this, 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 and this, and here's the data, and here's the proof, and here's, I mean, he does a fantastic job. And Donald Guthrie has what I consider to be one of the best articles uh, ever written on uh on the book of Hebrews and uh, why it should be in the canon, and in uh, and, and this and put it bluntly, it, it's complicated and there's a lot of data and it, it, I couldn't read it all here on the air. So uh, I'm not trying to cop out, but um, uh, if you don't have the copy of this book, you need to own it. It oh, <laughs> uh, absolutely. This is a this is a go-to book in my library, by the way. And uh, if you don't, in fact, if you want to pick it up, um, if you go to piratechristianradio.com, piratechristianradio.com, and you click on, um, hang on a second here, uh, Pirate Christian 
radio.com. There we go. Uh, and if you click on our store, uh, we have Pirate Store. If you click on Pirate Store, um, we've got this listed on, and, and I think it's in our biblical studies. Yes, it's in our biblical studies section of the Pirate Christian Radio Store. So if you click on Pirate Store and then uh, it's a browse by category, there's a little bar over on the right-hand side. Click on Biblical Studies. You will find New Testament Introduction by Donald Guthrie. You can pick up a copy of it that way. And again, all of our books are now, uh, the orders are fulfilled via uh, Amazon.com. And uh, and so you you will enjoy the book and support PCR at the same time. So that, that's the answer to that question. Now, we are up on our first break. And uh, when we come back, where did I, what did I do with my program notes here? I put them as far away from me as I could possibly put them. Okay, when we get back, we're going to talk about... Um, <laughs> we will be talking about the chicken and the egg. We will be talking about uh, God is not one. There's lots of stuff coming up after the break, so you don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit. And we saw 12 people heal the word of knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost hokey pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. You can... Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in. Dig your right hand out. You put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in. You take your left hand out. You put your left hand in. You take your left hand out. You put your left hand in. You take your left hand out. Put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. 
with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as I just start we start doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain I said and you said start checking yourself I was just squatting down that's awesome thank you Lord for new knees in yes. Jesus name come on come on um, I've had back problems most of my life and a couple about a week ago my back had gone out and it was somewhat better but it was still sore uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, 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 and you shake it. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and 
Dust collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud 9 Living. Cloud 9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud 9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud 9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Warning, if you're going to email me and disagree, I need, well, your reasons. Consider it like a math question. I don't care how you got to the answer. I want to see your work. (laughs) Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website. And uh, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. By the way, the web address is www.fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, two friendly yellow buttons will be there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's get into some of these news stories here. From uh, the MSNBC.com uh, d- blog, or site, from their science section, which came first, the chicken or the egg? British scientists claim to have solved the scientific philosophical mystery. Oh, well, we won't ever have to stay awake at night wondering about this one anymore. Is the age-old riddle? It is the age-old riddle that has perplexed generations. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now British scientists claim to have finally come up with the definitive answer. The answer is the chicken. <clears throat> the scientific and philosophical mystery was purportedly unraveled by researchers at Sheffield and Warwick Universities, according to the Daily Mail newspaper. The scientists found that a protein found only in a chicken's ovaries is necessary for the formation of the egg. According to the paper Wednesday, the egg can therefore only exist if it has been created inside of a chicken. The protein speeds up the development of the hard shell, which is essential in protecting the delicate yolk and fluids while the chicken grows inside of the egg, the report said. Quote, it has long been suspected that the egg came first, but now we have scientific proof that shows that, in fact, the chicken came first, said Dr. Colin Freeman from Sheffield University's Department of Engineering Materials, according to the Daily Mail. Quote, the protein had been identified before, and it was linked to egg formation, but by examining it closely, we have been able to see how it controls the process. Now, 
We Christians should not be surprised about this particular discovery. Why? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis chapter 1, especially starting at verse 20, we would, of course, know that God made chickens and that those chickens then produced eggs. Well, let me read Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creature and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Now you think, wait a second, Chris, chickens don't fly. Yes, I understand that, but God made birds on this day. So get over it. That includes non-flying chickens. They can fly, kind of, but not very far. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves on which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. So there you have it. If you just read the book of Genesis, there was no reason to stay stay up at night with insomnia just going, Oh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is the chicken. And now scientists have proof in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23 to be correct. So we can put that one to rest. Hooray. Okay. Now, um, tomorrow, in tomorrow's edition of, well, hang on a second. I, I got to do this one first. <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about the Museum of Idolatry quite yet. Uh, I, I didn't get to this story yesterday. Um, would you, if you listen to guys like Rob Bell and a lot of the emergents and the, the, the neo-mystics that have invaded the seeker-driven movement, uh, these guys uh, talk as if, well, all religions are one. Okay, It's not just the Dalai Lama that's doing this. It's a lot of uh, these, neo, uh, these neo-mystic guys, these emergents that uh, are you know, basically doing the Lectio Divina and trying to, quote, experience God, and they don't trust God's word, but they trust their experiences. They keep coming back and basically claiming all the religions are the same, you know? A gentleman by the name of Stephen uh, Prothrow, he is a professor in the Department of Religion at Boston University and the author of numerous books, including the uh, latest book, God is Not One. He was recently interviewed for the Washington Post, and this was featured on the Huffington Post. And uh, the name of the article of the interview is God is not one and neither are the religions. Here's the question that was asked. Are all religions the same? The Dalai Lama, who just celebrated his 71st birth, 71st birthday, often refers to the oneness of all religions. Yeah, in fact, in a very, very early uh, pi- uh, pilot edition of Fighting for the Faith, I uh, played a quote from the Dalai Lama at uh, an event that uh, Rob Bell and Doug Paget spoke at with the Dalai Lama, and uh, where the Dalai Lama talks about the oneness of all the religions. Anyway, the idea that all religions preach the same message of love, tolerance, and compassion. Historian uh, Historians Karen Armstrong and Houston Smith agree that major faiths are more alike than not, but in his new book, God is Not One, Religion scholar and on-the-faith panelist Stephen Prothero says views by the Dalai Lama, Armstrong, and Smith uh, that all religions are different paths to the same God is untrue, r- uh, disrespectful, and dangerous. Uh, who's right and why? Uh, well, uh, Prothero uh, re- answers. He says, I've been known to change my mind on occasion, but I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. With all due deference to Armstrong and Smith and the Dalai Lama, not to mention Gandhi, 
uh, Ramakrishna and many of the great mystics, mm-hmm, I have to insist that the world's religions differ and differ fundamentally. They address very different problems and propose very different solutions. They affirm different truths, practice different rituals, tell different stories, follow different leaders, and maintain different institutions. As I argued in God is Not One, Christians do not go on the Hajj to Mecca. Just give it, wait till next year. I'm sure Brian McLaren and Rob Bell will be going on the Hajj to Mecca next year. Listen, Stephen, you can't be saying stuff like this out loud because these emergents will hear you and then they'll go, you know, it's a good idea. As I argued in God is not one, Christians do not go on the Hajj to Mecca, and Muslims do not profess their faith in the Trinity. Anyone who says otherwise is not paying attention, and anyone who says such differences do not matter is condescending. The Hajj may not matter to philosophers of religious unity, but it matters to ordinary Muslims. In fact, it is one of the five pillars of Islam, and the Trinity matters to ordinary Christians. In fact, it provides the outline for all important the all-important Nicene Creed. I know that persons of goodwill are supposed to pretend the world's religions are different paths up the same mountain. To say otherwise is to invite religious warfare and to label yourself as illiberal. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, if only that was the worst that people would call me. <laughs> you know that Roseboro guy? He's illiberal. <gasps> Yeah, that would actually almost sound like a compliment considering the types of things I get in my email. I digress. Uh, But we can do better than pretend pluralism. True pluralism does not insist on remaking Islam in the image of Christianity or Christianity in the image of Islam. It recognizes the deep diversity across the great religions and and, and inside each of them. Whenever anyone tells me all religions are different paths up the same mountain, I ask them what stands at the peak. Well, not surprisingly, they tell me different things. What unites the religions is belief in God, some say. Others say the unity of God and the humanity lies at the heart of each. Still, others insist that the apex of all religions is compassion. Yeah, that's the Dalai Lama and the others. So even among religious lumpers, we find religious diversity. Great point. Moreover, in every case, we see thinkers unwittingly remaking other religions in their own image. Should we be surprised that the Dalai Lama, whose own religion emphasizes compassion, or karuna, finds uh, that virtue at the peak of the world's religions? Should we be surprised that Houston Smith, whose own religion emphasizes monotheism, albeit in a Trinitarian form, finds the one God there? But God is not one, or to put it more carefully, the world's religions differ on matters as central as the mathematics of divinity. But many Buddhists affirm zero gods, and many Hindus affirm many. Moreover, the character of divinity varies widely from god to god. No infant would mistake Hinduism's Kali for Christianity's Christ. Why should we? Perhaps I am missing something, but I have yet to find a view of interreligious unity that go- that does not reek of colonialism and empire. And as long as we insist on the dogma that all religions are essentially the same, we are bound to imagine that all religions are essentially like our own. This approach 
blinds us to the unique beauty in each religion and prevents us from making sense of religious conflict worldwide. Never has interreligious dialogue been more crucial than it is today, but ideologies of religious sameness impoverish and straitjacket us, turning so-called interreligious dialogue into monologue and an echo chamber, echo chamber among like-minded religious liberals. These new atheists, Hitchens, Harris, Dawkins, who say all religions are the same and are bad, are wrong, so are the uh, perennialists who say all religions are the same and good. What we need today is an approach to the world's religions that recognizes the good and the bad in each and the differences as well as the similarities. Only then can we hope to make sense of a world in which these rival religions play such a powerful role. I find uh, uh, Prothero's uh, point of view to be refreshing. I find it to be very refreshing and very illiberal. <laughs> okay, tomorrow on uh, it, it, the Museum of Idolatry, I will be placing a, up a video... Uh, from the extreme, uh, extreme prophetic media website, which is run by uh, Patricia King and uh, her, those who um, are off the deep end like her. Now, the video itself makes for bad radio, but in the video, in the video, you will see Joshua Mills and others who are covered in, well, sparkly gold dust. Yeah, a sparkly gold dust. And um, one gal uh, in the video, which you'll see tomorrow, if if you want to see it, it'll be at a little11.com. That's the uh, website address for the Museum of Idolatry. Um, One gal is even uh, apparently displaying miraculously the stigmata. If you're familiar with the so-called stigmata, this is this idea that... uh, uh, miraculously, the wounds of Christ appear on your body. Now, in her particular case, uh, her stigmata, it, rather than it just being blood, it's gold dust and blood. What do I think about this? Absolutely false miracles, because these pe- people are preaching a false Christ, and they're preaching a false gospel, and uh, basically uh, have perverted uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, oddly enough... One of my listeners pointed out the fact that um, the Bible mentions gold dust in it, and I had not considered this. And I thought it was such a, a great observation that I thought I would point this out. Now, in the Museum of Idolatry exhibit tomorrow, I will link to and, and quote from this section of Scripture. By the way, it's found in Exodus chapter 32. Let me read this for you, and I'll read the whole chapter because it's it's a rather fascinating story, but gold dust appears in the Bible. It's true. <clears throat> when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from Mount Sinai, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he has what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. 
So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, I want to point something out here. If you haven't noticed that this is kind of a mixing of the religions of Egypt and uh, and stuff that they had learned about Yahweh. And so they were trying to worship the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt in a way that was also syncretistically similar to, um, well, the religious practices of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are all the religions one? <laughs> no. <laughs> we continue. Verse 7. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. Uh, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and your servants in whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." And therefore the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Can pause there for a second. Here in Exodus 32, we learn that God himself is the is the author of the Bible, okay? Because what was written on those tablets ultimately does get written down into a book. But this idea of the writings of Scripture, the authoritative binding writings of Scripture, begins with God writing, okay? Side note there. <clears throat> okay. Okay, uh, writing uh, engraved on tablets. Then Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, There is the noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that had been made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder or to dust and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Right there, Exodus chapter 32, verse 20, the one and only place where gold powder is mentioned in the scripture. And what happened? He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, and ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. My opinion about these gold, supposed gold dust miracles that Patricia King and Joshua Mills and the whole XP Extreme Prophetic Media Gang are up to, first of all, they're charlatans. But second, I think that's a satanic mockery. I think it's a satanic mockery that has its roots right here in Exodus chapter 32. Let me finish the chapter, though. Moses said to Aaron, why, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. And and they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And and as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, well, let any of you uh, have have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and poof, out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you, and kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, and these are terrifying words, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Yeah, God takes it really seriously when people worship and serve idols and false gods. Talking about idols and false gods, we'll end with this uh, for this segment here. We're going to run a little bit long. Y'all heard, remember the book, The Secret, that came out a few years ago? Oprah really pushed it hard, you know, t- talking about the law of attraction. L- listen to this. 
Hello and welcome to another broadcast of Deep Cough in the Deep. I'm your host, Jeremy Lopez, here on IdentityNetwork.tv. Hope all is well with you today. I want to take a couple of moments and start a series, if I could, on the law of attraction from a biblical standpoint. I know a lot of times people talk about the law of attraction and they say it's new age and this and that, but there is something uh, to truth with the law of attraction, and that is it's all through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And if you okay, uh, Jeremy, um, if the law of attraction is all throughout the Bible through Genesis to uh, Revelation, then don't you think it would be taught clearly? Uh, let's listen carefully. If you think about it, we can't allow people to take away what God created. There are different laws in the universe that God's created. For example, you have the law of gravity. Well, yeah, but the postmodern scientists don't even believe in the law of gravity anymore, even though they don't float to work. How many of the law of gravity is not neither Christian nor New Age nor Jewish nor anything else? It's a law that God sets into motion in the universe. I want to talk about for a moment uh, in Genesis... In Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, it says this. Okay, now, okay, if you have your Bible, we were just uh, in Exodus. Flip backwards to uh, Genesis chapter 8. He's going to be reading <clears throat> out of context verse 32. And this is really, well, 32? Maybe it's 22. <sighs> anyway, we'll figure this out here in a second. But watch carefully what he does, and it's really easy to debunk this. But this is... A classic example of somebody who doesn't know how to properly handle God's word, who has been deceived and is now in, in stepping out and starting to deceive other people by basically unthinkingly parrot what he's been taught. Listen carefully. As long as the earth remaineth, there will be seed time and harvest, which means no matter what you do in life, every day of your life, every moment of your life, we, you know, we talk about seed time and harvest as realizing every moment of your day, you're either sowing or you're reaping. Did you know that? No, that's not what the text says. Um, man. So basically, he's taken a verse out of, out of the book of Genesis that says that as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. And what he's done is he's taken it out of context, and then he's... Uh, allegorically spiritualized it and then misapplied it. This is a classic example of how people twist God's word, which always is the reason why I always say you come back and you've got to do context and context and context and context. Those are the rules um, that you've got to... Uh, it, yeah, by the way, it is Genesis eight twenty two. And uh, you've got to always look things in context. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 8, and then let's take a look at the context of what's going on here. Okay, Genesis chapter 8, I'm going to start at verse 13 so I can get a good running start and kind of get a feel for what's going on here. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off of the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Okay, so leading up to this, we had Mo, uh, God you know, basically calling Noah, giving Noah his commission to build the ark. Noah builds the ark. God brings the animals. God brings the flood. And then they're on the ark for a year. And then this is the dissipation of this. This is the end of the flood story, so to speak. Okay, so the waters were dried from off of the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month and on the 
Seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then the God, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things and the things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons and his and wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, when um, our friend here from Extreme XP Media, um, when Jeremy Lopez here quoted this verse, he just said, oh, well, we've got to recover the biblical teaching of the law of attraction. And he quotes that, uh, Genesis 8:22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest will remain. And he, what he did is he allegorized it, spiritualized it, and misapplied it. This is a classic, classic way to twist God's word and to deceive people. This is not how the text should be handled, because when you put it back in its context, while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This was God giving his promise that he wouldn't destroy the earth again. And it continues because there's an artificial human break here in the text between, there's a chapter break, but keep reading. I continue now into into chapter nine. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat the flesh with its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And for man and from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that I shall never again, uh, I shall never again shall I all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the entire earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
when you read it in context, this passage isn't teaching nothing about the law, so-called law of attraction. This is basically the end of the story and God making his covenant, saying that he will never again destroy the earth by a flood. Plain and simple. (sighs) Let me listen to just a little bit more of this. That means we talked about for a long time, for years in the body of Christ, about money and finances, and we discussed the natural part of sowing and reaping. But how many know the Scripture does say that that which is first is natural and afterwards that which is spiritual, which means in the natural there's always a seed time and harvest going on 24 hours a day. Oh, man. Seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. But how many know spiritually, there's also a spiritual uh, seed time and harvest, which means spiritually what God does is he has a, you have a memory bank within inside of your brain. And that means whatever thoughts you think, that is attracted to you. The scripture says... <laughs> I think you get what's going on here. This is a guy who does not know how to handle the Bible at all. And as a result of it, he's just preaching pure fantasy and uh, yeah, the Bible says, and then he just, and then he quotes a thing out of context, and then goes on telling his story. Folks, when people are quoting the Bible to you, make them quote it in context. Make them teach you what God's Word fully says. That is one of the ways in which you can. It'll help to cut down on false interpretations and false teaching, and protect you from charlatans like this guy. Because that whole seed time and harvest and law of attraction thing. The final kicker is, well, send him money. That's how you sow. Yeah. Okay, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review coming up. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, President and Founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. Time for our sermon review. This one, I absolutely found it depressing. All right, give me a moment here as I, as I cue up my sermon uh, review music. Maestro, hit it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon was one of the sermons that was delivered in the uh, 2010 edition of the One Prayer Sermon Series, promoted by Craig Rochelle of LifeChurch.tv. The pastor preaching this sermon is Scott Hodge of The Orchard in Chicago's suburbs. We've featured his sermons before. And over the years, I've watched Scott Hodge drift farther and farther away from biblical Christianity. The name of his sermon, by the way, is called Unstoppable Movement, and it's supposedly about the church. Uh, that being the case, we should hear some great stuff about the gospel. The sad thing you need to listen for is when he gets into the book of James, chapter 5, you'll hear about the forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't even register on his radar. It's right there. He reads it, and it's just crickets, blank stare. As a result of this, 
he's going to preach a false gospel. And it's a subtly false gospel, and it's very, very sad to watch and to listen to. Let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Scott Hodge of The Orchard preaching about the unstoppable movement, apparently the body of Christ or the church. Unfortunately, it sands the biblical gospel. Here is Scott Hodge. Well, hey, everybody. I want to, uh, first of all, welcome you to this, this global movement of churches, this global gathering known as One Prayer. Uh, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of people gathered together uh, for this awesome, awesome event. Uh, my name is Scott Hodge, and uh, I just want to say on behalf of uh, our church community called The Orchard, I want to say thank you for letting us come and really be a part of your gathering today. You know, our theme for this year's One Prayer uh, all comes down to one word. The word is unstoppable. In fact, would you, would you say that with me? Let's say it together. Ready? Unstoppable. That was pretty good. Unstoppable. Now, let me ask you a question, okay? Just out of curiosity, when you hear the word unstoppable, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Jesus? See, I'd be willing to bet that for some of you, you, you immediately think of that. I, I can't wait to see how many hands go up. Uh, you immediately think of that annoying Energizer bunny, right? That just keeps going and going and going, even though the commercials aren't going and going. But we remember it, don't we? Or, or maybe if you're, if, maybe it's not the bunny. If you're like me, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a two-year-old that just keeps going and going and going, right? Uh, at six o'clock in the morning and, and way, way too early. Can anybody relate to that, right? But, but unstoppable, I think probably for some of us, when you hear the word unstoppable, you think of maybe the tasks on your task list that just keep getting added somehow, right? Or you think of the, the bills that keep piling up or the appointments and all the to-do things that we have going on. And, and then, of course, probably some of you think of that one movie, that, that one film of the underdog, right? That great story of that team or that, you know, that one person who, against all odds, somehow came out victorious, you know, Jesus one time made a statement uh, about something that he said was absolutely 100% unstoppable. And he was talking about the church. Now, uh, chances are for some of you, when, when you hear the word the church, and when you hear that Jesus said that, perhaps for some of you there's a little piece of you that's a little bit uh, uh, cynical, uh, maybe some cynicism sort of arises because just like all of us, you've seen the you've seen the mess, right? You've seen the you've seen the pro, you've seen the money problems, you've seen the yeah, I don't know the people problems, you've seen the you've seen the fill in the blank problems, whatever they might be, uh, and and yet listen, Jesus was very very adamant that there is absolutely nothing, there is no law. There is no rule, there is no, uh, no power on earth, nothing that will ever be able to stop this movement of Jesus. That- okay, now listen carefully. I, I want to point something out here. Some of his critique, you can tell it's heartfelt and he's lived in an experience. And he talks about the fill-in-the-blank problems with the church. These are real problems. We, the, you know, People and leaders in the church have really done some terrible damage to the name of Christ and to the greater body of Christ. You know, you think of the, the TBN scandals, you think of the, uh, the charlatan uh, money-grubbing, you know, f- people like Patricia King, Todd Bentley. 
I mean, just fill in the blank. We've all we all know what he's talking about here, and that that ever so common concern that uh, the church is full of hypocrites and a bunch of judgmental. Yeah, we we got it. Okay, this is this is not in this. Hmm. But that being the case, listen carefully to his language about the church as being a quote unstoppable movement. Is the church a movement? Is that the right way to talk about the church as a movement? Hmm. That began, you know, over 2,000 years ago. In fact, he, he even tells Peter at one point, he says that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church, not even the gates of hell. And, and, and you know, what's interesting about it is, is if you look back over the last several centuries, there's been, I, I don't know, all kinds of interesting ideas about what this unstoppable movement of Jesus looks like. In fact, there's some, uh, you know, over time uh, where, where to them unstoppable meant building great buildings and, and congregating in great cathedrals and structures. And the idea was, well, as long as we have this amazing place to gather, th- then there'll be nobody that can stop us. And, and, and yet the irony in it is, is that it, it, here we are in 2010. If you go to many of these buildings and many of these cathedrals, uh, well, you're going to find that they're, they're empty. Is that why cathedrals were built? Because they people thought that the that the church would be unstoppable if they built cathedrals in big churches. Well, and and then of course in other times in other eras there was sort of this idea that well, well that unstoppable meant separating ourselves, right? Uh, like the monastics, like the. You know, Julian of of Sandwich or Norwich or whatever, that he, he did a sermon on recently. She was a hermitess. Is that who you're talking about? Doing everything we can to get away from the, the evils of society. You know, shielding ourselves from all the, the muck and the mire of our culture. And the thing is, while that might have sounded good at the time, really all it did was remove us from the very people that we were called to be with. So a lot of different ideas. I mean, there's other times that the idea of what, what an unstoppable church looks like is, is holiness, right? If we can just figure out how to be holy. If we can ju- so he's knocking holiness where, you know, Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. Notice he's kind of de- basically taking different things and deconstructing it so that at the end, what are we left with? What's he going to deconstruct next? Stay tuned. Just figure out how to live pure. Then we'll be unstoppable. And, of course, the thing is, I mean, look. This is, by the way, these are all straw men. He's basically, uh, he's like a dog with a torch tied to his tail running through a, a field full of straw men catching fire to all of them. I mean, being holy is a, is a good thing. God calls us to holiness. But the thing is, man, the minute you and I make that our number one priority in life is the minute that, well, I mean, we know what happens. Forget it, right? And then, of course, for others, being unstoppable meant knowing and believing all the right stuff. Yeah, you know, sound doctrine, that's, that's bad too. Right? I mean, if you, can ju- if you just know the proper theology then you're good. If you just know uh, all the doctrine, if your doctrine is just perfect, or if you know the Bible really well, or uh, as long as you can pray really well, again, all good stuff and all things that are important. Oh, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with being holy or, you know, sound doctrine. But, but the fact is, we all know this. Look, knowledge in and of itself, I mean, what good is it if all you have is knowledge right here? 
and which of the great theologians is, has ever made the apologetic case for basically saying, all you really need is head knowledge? I, I can't name a single theologian, not one, who also had a passion for sound doctrine, who basically made the case that what we really all, all we need is head knowledge. And so the question is, what, what do we do? How do we, I mean, how do we measure and how do, how do we identify what an unstoppable movement looks like? Well, see, I, I think that's... Uh, Where in the Bible does it teach about an unstoppable movement? Again, even the passage you quoted from Matthew 28 doesn't exactly equate to, quote, unstoppable movement. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but the church is not a movement. I think that's an important question. I think it's important because, I mean, I mean, for one, while the, the big church, the, the global church, the big C, while, while the big church of Jesus Christ will always prevail, and, and while there's absolutely nothing that can, that can put a stop to the mission of Jesus, look, the fact is you and I as individual followers of Jesus, and you and I, and even in our church's small C, well, we certainly can be stopped. And, and oftentimes we are, aren't we? And so this is an important question. I think that's why, you know, this is one of those questions that we need to wrestle with. One of those questions where, where we need to sort of grasp uh, what it means to be an unstoppable movement. So I want to do that for a few minutes today. Why do we need to grasp the question of what it means to be an unstoppable movement if that's not what the Bible teaches about the church? Where does the Bible teach that the church is an unstoppable movement? In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to James chapter 5. Okay, now pay attention here. You're going to hear him reading the text, and there's going to be mentions of key components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus summed up the mission in Luke 24 as this, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations, to all generations. Okay? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In James chapter 5, the passage, the section he's going to be reading from James chapter 5, which, by the way, this is a miserable way to teach through a book, is by start, you know, just basically, you know, we're going to pick something right there at the end. Okay? Even James preaches the gospel. So here you're going to hear about the forgiveness of sins. And I kid you not, it's like, you know, as you as he reads through it, it's like taking a needle and sticking it into the hand of a dead person. There's nothing there. There's no flinch, no recognition that you've just been pinched or you know poked with a needle. I mean, it's it's not even on his radar. And this, and why is this important to note? Because Scott Hodge has bought, basically, been hanging out with the emergent folks, and has bought into. This neo-mysticism. The gospel doesn't even register. Listen. Uh, James chapter 5. Now, this might seem kind of random to some of you. But in James chapter 5, the the New Testament writer is actually writing to the church. And he says something very interesting. Let let me show you what he says. James chapter 5, verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? Don't cough. No, I'm just kidding. Are any of you sick? 
<laughs> you, should, you should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 15, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the, the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Okay, he skipped over something. I want, to, I want to show you, if you have your Bible, open up to James chapter 5. Verse 13 is where I'm going to begin. I'm going to show you something. He just skipped over some kind of important words. Okay, watch this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Okay, he, he, oh man. Okay, so here in in this passage, we've got confessing your sins and being forgiven of your sins. Key stuff, key stuff that focuses and points straight back to the cross of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for us. Okay, now listen. He's. I'm going to back this up just a little bit. I want you to hear how he's handling the text. What he just took out, pay attention. And again, the gospel doesn't register, doesn't even show up on his radar. He reads it, and he may as well have not read it because it doesn't even make a blip in his mind. Comfort and faith will heal the sick, and the, the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. And in verse 16, he says this, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. I'll tell you what, there's a lot. Um, <clears throat> confess your sins to one another. Pray for them that you may be healed. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, good. Yeah, there's a lot there. Can you focus in on the forgiveness of sins part and confessing our sins to one another and being forgiven? That is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just read it. Now let's see what happens right there that James is saying to us. I mean, he's saying, look, okay, are, are you suffering hardships? All right, we'll pray for each other. I mean, are you, are you happy? Okay, we'll celebrate with each other. Be happy, okay? Be happy together. Uh, are you sick? Are you, are you physically sick? Are you spiritually sick? Are you mentally sick? Well, if you are, pray. Are, 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 is there sin in your life? And if there is, be honest with each other. If there's sin, <laughs> What? If there's sin in your life, be honest with each other? Didn't it say confess your sins and be forgiven? Hello? Scott, you just read a passage that points right back to Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. And you just turned it into, well, do you have sin in your life? Well, just be honest with each other. That's a different gospel, Scott. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the one in the Bible, doesn't call us to just be honest with each other. It calls us to confess our sins and be forgiven and forgive. Think about the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I mean, you could tie this right back to that and then tie it right back to the cross. Where is that? 
this this is not just saying if you've sinned, if there's sin in your life, just be honest. In, in other words, in other words, don't try to do this this journey by yourself. Don't try to do it alone. And see, here's the thing that, that I think is so cool about this, this section of James chapter 5. It, it, it's interesting, and I don't know whether or not this was intentional. Probably, I, probably wasn't. I don't know. But, but it's almost like what, what James seems to be doing here is so much more than just uh, about telling us what we should do. In, in fact, in many ways, it's almost like James is, is, is painting this picture. Like he's painting this, this beautiful, beautiful picture of what this, this unstoppable movement, this unstoppable group of people. Okay, now notice, he said, oh, if this, it's like, it's as if James is painting this picture of what the unstoppable movement looks like. Where in the book of James does, it's, does James himself say, let me paint a picture for you of what the unstoppable movement of Christ looks like? It doesn't. That's not the purpose of what's going on here. And if you read James in context, you'll notice that these exhortations, there's many other exhortations that precede this. It's like a list of different things. He's you know, exhorting all kinds of different people with all kinds of different issues in the church. And the key to this section on the exhortations in the epistle of James is the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't just say be honest. It says be forgiven. Known as the church looks like. And he's showing us here that, that, a, that a healthy, beautiful, uh, unstoppable movement is a movement that's filled with messy and broken people. See, and, and James points it out. I mean, he says, look, the church is going to be, in many ways, the church is going to be a, a messy mosaic, okay? You're, you're going to have people who are hurting. You're going to have people who are suffering. You're, you're going to have people who are cheerful. You're going to have people who are happy and joyful, and you're going to have people who are sick, people who are, who are weak, people who are sinful, people who are broken. In other words, hey, you want to know what an unstoppable movement looks like? Right there. That's it. And, of course, if you think about it, I mean, if there if – So an unstoppable movement just looks like a bunch of messy sinners. What about – forgiven sinners. You know, Christ's death on the cross, propitiatory sacrifices, atoning sacrifice, penal substitution, all of that stuff. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Where is that, Scott? So the unstoppable movement basically just looks like a bunch of messy people. Boy, this is like a tasteless wafer. I mean, if there's anywhere that, that broken and messy people ought to be, where's it at? It's the church, right? I mean, look, the church ought to be filled with people who are weak. The church ought to be filled with people who are struggling, people who are imperfect, people who are messy. In fact, the truth is every church is. Right? I agree. But it, the solution to the messiness is not our holiness. It's the holiness of Christ. It's the forgiveness of sins. The church should be full of messy, forgiven sinners. I mean, think about this for a second. Every, I mean, your church is, whatever city you're in, your church is full of people who are broken and messy. Our church is full of people who are broke. Every church at every corner in our city, in our community, is filled with people who are broken and messy. Really, the question is, I mean, are they honest about it? Being honest is like only part of the issue 
Yes, we're called to confess and be honest that we are sinners. And we are to be forgiven. The gospel that Scott Hodge is basically proposing here is just come and be honest about the fact that you're messed up and we can all just be messy together. We could be just one big community hug of of messiness. Yeah, are they honest about it? I mean, are they, are they the are they the kind of places where where people can be honest about it? Are they the kind of communities where people can open up and 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 talk about their struggles and and their pain? It sounds like he's describing an AA meeting, not the church. Because at an AA meeting, isn't the first thing you have to do is admit that you have a problem? You know. The guy raises up his hand, says, "Hi, I'm John, and I'm an alcoholic." Isn't that how that goes? Isn't isn't an AA meeting a, a basically a group of messy people who are being honest about the fact that they have a problem? I mean, by his way of describing the Unstoppable Movement, you know, group therapy sessions that help you overcome addiction are to the church too. What's the thing that makes the, the the body of Christ different than an AA meeting? It's the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on his cross. And it's for you and it's for me. Not that we just come and to get, come together as a community and we can all be messy together and be honest about the fact that we're all broken and messed up and sinners and screwed up and have hang-ups and hurts and habits and all that kind of stuff. No, we come and we confess our sins and we receive and hear that our sins are forgiven. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Just being honest that you are screwed up and messed up does not equal repentance. If anything, this is the uh, the opposite of repentance. It's, yeah, I'm screwed up and I'm messed up, but that's just the way I am. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to repent of our sins and be forgiven. And they're hurt. Because the fact is, we're all broken. I heard someone say one time, they said, you know, the question isn't, do you sin? Really, the question is, what is your sin, right? What, what, is, your, what is your struggle? See, I mean, that's a, that's a different conversation than... Uh, what many of us experienced growing up in church. I, I mean, I, I know for me, uh, and probably for many of you, I, I didn't necessarily grow up in, uh, in, in an environment where I was encouraged to open up about my weaknesses. You know, I, I mean, it's not that I didn't want to. I, I think in many regards, it wasn't that I, I didn't want to. It's just that I couldn't. It's like if you, if you were honest about it and if you opened up about it, you would be what well, you'd be looked down on. You know, what he's describing here is a very valid problem in the church. And, you know, and but the, his solution is almost as bad as the problem that he's describing here, because uh, in the legalistic churches, uh, people don't know what to do with sin. As a result of it, they become hypocrites. They put on airs like as if they're pulling it off when they know that they're not and they can't talk about their sin. In Scott's Ho Scott Hodge's church, apparently you can show up and we'll all just be honest that we're all sinners and screwed up that's i guess an improvement but it's still not the solution the solution is sins confessed and forgiven not just admitted you'd be judged you might be criticized and and as if you were the only person who struggled or the only person who 
who, who had that sin or whatever it might have been. And see, and see, that's what happens when, when people in churches aren't honest about their brokenness. I mean, that's what happens when, when, when churches try to put on this facade or when God's people forget that, okay, while we may be God's people, hey, we're still people. And we're still broken. And we're going to struggle with this brokenness until the day we die. Just how it is. And, and the ironic thing is how we so easily miss it. And yet it's right there in front of us. I mean, you just open up the scriptures. I mean, look, you, you can't even get past the, the first book of the Bible without seeing a tremendous amount of mess. I mean, Genesis, why did they, they, they should have called it the book of dysfunction. You know, I mean, think about this. All right, you've, got, you've got Cain, okay? Cain, jealous of his brother Abel, takes him out in the middle of a field and kills him. What's up, brother? Right? And, and, and then, you've got, then you've got Cain's descendant, a guy named Lamech. You know why Lamech is famous? Because Lamech introduced polygamy into the world. Okay, and then, and then you've got the most righteous man of his generation, Noah, right? Godly man who gets drunk and curses his grandson. Hey, thanks, Grandpa. You know, and, and, and then, and then uh, you've got a guy named Lot. Okay, Lot. Okay, Lot finds one day, finds out that his home is surrounded uh, by these residents of Sodom who want to, quote, unquote, violate some visitors uh, who are staying at his house. Well, of course, what does Lot do? Well, Lot doesn't want his visitors to be violated. So instead of allowing his visitors to be violated, he actually offers up his daughters to be violated. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's great, right? And, and then later on, get this. This is crazy. His daughters end up getting him drunk and get impregnated by dad. Mm. Yeah, see, and see, here's the crazy thing. Lot was actually considered to be like the most righteous man in Sodom. Hmm. See, that makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, right? I mean, you think, okay, so I mean, maybe my, maybe my family's not as messed up as I thought, right? No, look, the point is everybody is broken, and, and even though we're God's people, man, we are still people. And brokenness is going to be the struggle of our lives until the day we die. And see, here's the thing. This unstoppable... <clears throat> now, he's right to some degree. Yes, we're going... And why are we talking about sin as brokenness? We're going to be broken and struggle with brokenness until the day that we die. Scott, what was Jesus doing on the cross? It says that Christ was crucified for our sins. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's not that we're just going to just be honest about the fact that we're broken, and we're going to be broken until we die. Christ died for our sins. It's about the forgiveness of our sins. Well, movement of Jesus. You know, it's, it's not about trying to look perfect. It's not about trying to, you know, have the perfect church building, or it's not about trying to be the most innovative pastors. Listen, it's not about trying to be the most innovative or the most creative church. Okay. It's about being people who aren't afraid of the mess. It's about being people who, who understand that, look, that as long as there's a horse in the stable, there is going to be some stank. Okay, you know, listen, I mean, I mean and, and every once in a while, check the bottom of your shoes because there's going to be something there. See, so, so the question is, are we, are we willing to embrace the mess? Pastors, are, are you willing to embrace the mess? 
Churches, are you willing to embrace the mess? Are you, how about this, are you as an individual willing to be honest about your mess? See, the other alternative is what? Well, it's to hide it, right? It's to, it's to try to pretend that you're okay. John Orberg calls it uh, depravity management. Yeah, it's trying to, trying to uh, and pretending to be healthier and more spiritual and, and, and kinder than you really are. And I'll tell you what, if you've ever tried to live that way, it is, it is one of the most difficult ways to live your life. Yet some people are so good at it. See, look, look, so James says, look, the church is always going to be a mess. The church is always going to be a mess because it's made up of people, and people are a mess. Okay, no, what's the gospel here? The good news is that people are just going to be a mess because people are a mess. We just need to embrace the mess. This is not the gospel. This is a false gospel. The mess needs to be forgiven and atoned for, and God's wrath against the mess needs to be propitiated. So it's always going to be, and see, that's why, that's why my hope and my prayer for, for us here at the Orchard, my hope and prayer for you and your church community is that, is that we would be the kind of churches that, that, that truly embrace and, and really create a safe and, and loving environment for people, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey. Just create a safe and loving environment where people can be messy. And we can be the kind of church that, that, we're, that allows people to be honest about their brokenness. It allows people to be honest about their sin and, and their hurt and their pain. Because I'll tell you what, out of that kind of community flows what? Well, out of the words of James, it flows healing, forgiveness, rest. What about forgiveness of sins? So an unstoppable movement is one that is honest about its brokenness and about the mess. But see, here's the thing. James doesn't stop there. In fact, he also tells us that we should help each other to navigate through the mess. Yeah, in fact, in fact uh, let me show you in verse 16. He tells us here, and as you're about to see, that we really... I want to point something out. <clears throat> the biblical gospel is so much better news than this. It's so much of a better, more compelling story than this. <clears throat> I mean, this is a completely weak and powerless gospel. Well, we're all just messy, and we need to embrace the mess and create a safe space where people can come and, and be together in their messiness. Should, should not just uh, embrace and be honest about the mess, but we should take it a step further and actually pray for one another. Let me, let me show you what it says. Verse 16, he says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. Okay, got to stop right there. It says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. <clears throat> Scott, it says the prayer of a righteous person, not a messy person, but a righteous person has great power. How is it that our prayers can help people if all we are are just messy and broken? And it says the prayer of a righteous person. Person. It doesn't say the prayer of any old, any old kind of person, but it says the prayer of a righteous person. Broken, messy people are not righteous. There's only one way we can be declared to be righteous, and that's if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness imputed to us by faith, our sins forgiven. 
God's wrath propitiated, his righteousness given to us as if it was our own. That's all part of the gospel. So here you're reading James, and James says the prayers of a righteous person have great power. You're missing the gospel here, and as a result of it, you this preaching like completely misses the point of James and completely misses the gospel here in James chapter 5. And produces wonderful results. And then he gives us this great example of why prayer is so powerful. He says Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. We need to do that here in Chicago, don't we? Pray. (laughs) All right. Anyway, then it says in verse 18, then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. I, I, I love how he uses Elijah here as an example. He points out, he says, look, Elijah was as human as you are. Okay. In other words, he was broken too. All right. And the bottom line is God does not have favorites. And see, that, that's why you and I, as, as we try to help each other to navigate through the mess of our lives, we can and we should pray just like Elijah prayed. Man, we, should, we should be people who pray with faith. We should be people who don't give up, who, who don't try praying for three days and say, well, maybe that didn't work. I'm going to give up on that. We should be people who are earnestly and consistently praying with great faith. Because what does it say? The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. Great power. <clears throat> the prayers of a righteous person. Not a broken person, not a messy person, a righteous person. Scott, he's reading it and it's not even registering. See, I love that. Elijah, he didn't give up, man. He, pray, he prayed for a nation and God intervened. God answered. And we too should pray for one another, for those who are hurting, for those who are sick, for well, you just said they're messy. What about righteous? How do they? How do these messy people become righteous? For those who are weak, for those who are in need of, of having their spiritual arms raised because maybe they're going through a season of hurt or they're, or they're weak right now in their life. Man, people need it. We need to gather around each other and we need to be people who pray. Man, that, that's what an unstoppable community, an unstoppable movement does. And they help each other navigate through the, through the mess. But see, here's the thing. It, it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's not to me, I don't think, just about praying. I, I think it's about even taking it a step further. There's a great book that, that I've read and, and, and have reread several times. It's uh, an author by the name of Ronald Rollheiser. The book is called The Holy Longing. Okay, I want to tell you something about Ronald Rollheiser. If you're not familiar with him, Ronald Rollheiser, speaker, columnist, Author Ronald Rollheiser, a Roman Catholic priest and member of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, is the president of Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. He's a community builder, lecturer, and writer. He's also a mystic. Ronald Rollheiser is a Roman Catholic mystic. He denies, flat out denies, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And here Scott Hodge is letting letting everyone know he's been reading his books and is rereading and rereading them, the holy longing. And and, uh, in it, 
the author really points out something that, that I think really just resonates with me in regards to prayer, especially in the context of a church community uh, such as James is writing to and, and, and us here uh, in our church and in yours. And he points this out. I think, I think this is powerful. He says these words. When we pray, not only is God being petitioned and asked to act, but we are also charging ourselves as the body of Christ with some responsibility for answering that prayer. Real, duh. I, I mean, think about that for a second. Okay, what, what he's saying here is, look, it's not just about praying for people. Okay, it's also about potentially seeing ourselves as being a part of the answer for the prayers that we're praying for others. I, I mean, think about the By the way, the Bible makes this exact point. This for a second. I mean, what would happen if, if as the body of Christ, okay, because we are the body of Christ, aren't we? It, the Bible doesn't say we are like the body of Christ. The scripture says we are the body of Christ, okay? And see, what, what James is doing, what, what, what we even read in, in books like Rollheiser, is, is that he's given us this, this, this additional glimpse of, of what this beautiful movement, this unstoppable movement of Jesus looks like. And, and he's reminding us, man, that we are, yes, we're empowered to ask and pray, but we are also empowered to act and be. I want to point this out. The Apostle James makes this point. I don't need a Roman Catholic mystic to make it. <clears throat> James chapter 2, verse 14 What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Well, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Yeah, James chapter 2. Uh, listen, when you look at it this way, I mean, suddenly what happens is your prayers begin to change. I mean, suddenly what happens is we find ourselves, you know, really taking that moment, in the, in the, even in the middle of our prayer, and pausing and, and asking the question, okay, God, is there some way that you want to use me to help be a part of the answer, maybe in a big way, maybe in a small way? Is there some way you want to use me to help answer the very prayer that I'm praying for this person? I mean, can, can you imagine how many more prayers would be answered if we, if we were to take time to really consider that? Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm guilty of this, and, and you, you all are definitely guilty of this. No, I'm kidding. But, but think about this. I mean, I, look, how many times do we, do we take the approach of, of like, like, okay, God, I'm going to pray. God, we, we just pray for Ted, Lord. Because, God, Ted really needs encouragement right now. He just needs to know that you love him. And, God, he needs to know that his friends love him too. So I just pray for my friend Ted. And I pray that somehow, God, you would encourage him and that you would love him and that you would in some way let him know that his friends love him and care about him too. Amen. Seriously, what do you think goes through, goes through God's mind when we pray like that? <sighs> Who made you, right? No, I mean, seriously, Scott, hello. McFly, Scott, listen, you encourage him, knucklehead. Right? Listen, Scott, you, you remind him that I love him. Scott, you remind him, because you're his friend, you remind him that his friends love him too. 
Listen, see, this is about, you know what this is? This is about putting skin on our prayers. It, it, it's about, it's, it's about, about actually getting involved in trying to bring about what it is we are asking God to do in another person's life. Nothing wrong with this point. This is a perfectly valid point. But where's the gospel here? I mean, imagine if every time we prayed, we, we stopped. Every time we prayed for people in our church community who's in need, who's suffering, who, who, who's hurting in their lives. I mean, imagine if every time we were to just pause and say, okay, God, is there some part of this you want me to be uh, involved with? Is, is, am, I the, am I part of the answer? Maybe in, a, maybe in a big way, maybe in a small way, what's my role in this prayer that I'm praying right now? You see, I, th- I think that would change the way, the way we think. I think that would change the way we, we, we talk to God. I think it would change the way we reach out to love one another. See, I mean, chances are we probably are an answer to so many people's prayers, and, and it just goes right by us, doesn't it? I mean, because think about this. I mean, what? Listen, listen, the primary way that God brings blessing in your life, think, or, or think even maybe the primary way that, that, that God has answered prayers in your life is, is how? Is through what? Through the avenue of relationships, right? I mean, oftentimes through friendships, people you know. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but very seldom have I ever heard of someone who was in great need of encouragement and, and the solution was for God to send down uh, an angelic choir to sing a song of encouragement to them. No, no. I mean, more than likely, it, w- it was somebody they knew encouraged them. Or, or I've never known someone who was in great need financially and the solution was for God to somehow drop a bag of coins out of heaven on their head. No, I mean, listen, the primary way that God blesses us, the the primary way that that God answers prayers is through people that we are in relationship with. I mean, so often it's the people that we're surrounded with in community. See, that's why community is so so vital. Because, man, it's, 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 it's being the hands and the feet of Jesus and taking part in being the answers to the very prayers that we're praying. Listen, imagine, I mean, how many more prayers? might be answered if we constantly considered that perhaps what is it that with these guys imagine how many more prayers would be answered if we just did x y or z why does my imagination have anything to do with how many prayers are answered or what if i do it by doing x y or z imagine how many imagine this imagine imagine you know imagine there's no people yeah whatever that perhaps we are the answer to the very prayers we're praying. See, see, ultimately what James is doing here is he's reminding us that we are the church. Yeah, that, that more than being someplace we go to. Actually, James is kind of tackling the idea of Christians that claim that they have faith, but there's no good works that flow from that faith. That that's not biblical saving faith. That's something completely different. That's a dead faith. James spends quite a bit of time on that and then goes on to show us what faith in action looks like. To or church being about a building or the church being about a, a you know, an organization. No, no, you, you know what this reminds us? This, this basically reminds us that, look, the church is not an organization. It is an, it is an organism. It, it is an organism that is made up of messy, broken people. What about forgiven sinners? I mean, I mean, look, and see, that, that's what an unstoppable movement looks like. Just a bunch of messy people confessing that they're messy and 
embracing the mess and creating a safe space to be messy in. A, a group of people who are, who, are, who are willing to get honest about the mess. A group of people who are willing to help each other navigate through the mess by asking and praying. But not just by asking and praying, but by also asking. How about being forgiven for the mess like the text you read said? Not being honest, but being forgiven. Acting and being the church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. That is right there, a beautiful, beautiful movement. Well, finally, James, he closes out this chapter. In fact, he closes out the the whole letter with these words. Uh, James 5, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, if, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. There it is again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's right here in the text. It's right here in the text. He just read it. We just heard the gospel again. My dear, he's reading from the New Living Translation, by the way. I'll just read it from the screen. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth, and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Now, important words in this, in, in these two verses. Truth brought back forgiveness of sins. Someone who wanders away from the truth and then is brought back to the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. So when somebody wanders away from the truth, they're wandering away from Christ and from the forgiveness of sins. But if you bring them back, bring the sinner back, you'll save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. There it is. It's the gospel right here. Yes, it's right. He's just, he just read it. Will he, will it even pierce through his brain at this point? And he, look, James says, look, okay, is someone falling away? What do you do? Yeah, get out of here. No, what is he? Look, he says, go after him. And go after him, pursue them. I mean, go, go after him, love him back into the community. Do whatever you can to, I mean, don't discount them. Don't, don't excommunicate them. Love them. Accept them. Do everything you can to bring them back. Pour out mercy and grace and forgiveness and love upon them. Love them back into the community. And if you do that, you've won. So close. So close and yet so far. Uh. Man, not only have you won, but man, that, that begins to spread through your community and something powerful begins to happen. See, see James, what James is showing us here is that, that an unstoppable movement is made up of people who choose to live with, with, with eyes wide open, who, who will find those people who've lost faith in tomorrow and, and who will go after them and will show them. Find those people who have lost faith in tomorrow. What does that even mean? them this, this radical love and grace by by putting their arms around them and bringing them back home i see that i mean i mean that's powerful see that that's a beautiful beautiful picture i mean that that is a unstoppable movement 
I, it's like the it's like the text he just read. It didn't. I mean, it, it, he was completely blind to the words that were right in front of his face. The words that he actually spoke that were just on his lips. <sighs> See, here's the thing. Okay, while buildings and structures and you know, strategies and plans and creativity and innovation and, and all, all that's good and, and all that's very helpful. The, the fact is this, look, the unstoppable movement of Jesus always comes down to people and people are messy. And so, so look, let's not be afraid to, to embrace the mess. Let's not be afraid to be honest about the mess as, as we, listen, as we join with our creator in his beautiful mission of redemption in this world, here and now. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Mm. This is just sad and tragic to watch. Absolutely sad and tragic to behold. I stop and pray for Scott Hodge, folks. Stop and pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would break through with this man. He's gone from being deceived to being a deceiver. He's gone from the frying pan to the frying uh, to the end of the fire. This 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 solution that he is offering is not the biblical gospel. It might be kinder and gentler than legalism, which it sounds like he grew up in, and I can I cannot blame him for rejecting that. It's it's a false gospel as well. But this is not a gospel either. Just embrace the mess. People are messy. Just embrace the mess. Forgiveness of sins. Christ's death on the cross. Confess your sins to one another and be forgiven. The erring and straying brother, bring him back to the truth and you will bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, we need to confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean and that we sin against God by thought, by word, by deed, by the things we do, by the things that we don't do. But it's not just admitting that you're messy and broken. Christ didn't come to basically affirm you in the mess or make you feel safe in the mess. He came to forgive the mess. His blood was shed because of the mess. So the mess can be forgiven. God's wrath propitiated. You redeemed, bought back from sin, death, and the devil. That you can have life eternal. It's all gift. Jesus didn't come to set up a therapy movement. He came and has told us to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. It's worlds apart different than what you just heard Scott Hodge preach about. Hmm. Very sad. Tragic indeed. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. 
You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, folks, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.